Hello and welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. I'm your host, Jason Silo, and I'm very excited tonight to be recording this episode for you about Billy Friedkin's epic 1985 neo-noir Los Angeles counterfeiting secret service extravaganza to live and die in L.A. Let's begin thusly. Okay, why don't we shoot? He's offset. I've got the slate. Wang Chung's perfectly calibrated score is just one of the unexpected, amazing aspects to this film that's been a pleasure to revisit. It's one of the things that, on the surface of it, kind of makes no sense. Here we are making a neo-noir Los Angeles crime thriller. So, naturally, we're going to get the most... British synthy pop new wave band you could imagine to do this to do the score not just songs but a whole score including this theme song to live and die is this the room I live my life forever I wonder why in that life Why does it work so well? I don't know. But the fact is that it does. And interestingly, in the making of materials, the Wang Chung guys talk about how when they sat down with William Friedkin, he said, look, the one thing I don't want is a song called To Live and Die in L.A. So they avoided that. But they talk in the featurette about the freedom that he gave them to do what they do, to do their thing. He didn't impose upon them his concept of what they should or should not be doing. And when they went back to screen the film, the finished film in Los Angeles, and they tell this funny story that these were the days of record label excess to the, to the point where Sure, we're going to fly the Wang Chung guys in from London just to watch the finished film in a screening room at Todd A.O. Studios. So they did that. And on the flight back, the idea for this song appeared. And they wrote it. And they sent it to Friedkin, fully expecting him to say, oh, thank you so much. But as I said, I really don't want to do a song called To Live and Die in L.A., but instead he wrote back and he said, this is amazing. I'm going to reshoot and recut the entire title sequence of the film around this song. And indeed, that's what happened. So that's one of the many happy accidents that contribute to this incredible, incredible film. I want to start by quoting a couple lines from a documentary I've mentioned many times on the podcast, which I hope, if you haven't seen, you seek it out. 
You can rent it on YouTube. I think you can get it on a few other streaming series uh, services. It is the film, the documentary film by Tom Anderson, Los Angeles Plays Itself. And it's a fascinating two-hour and 53-minute essay, in essence, with brilliantly selected film clips, which cover a wide topography of concepts and ideas relating to the way that Los Angeles has been and is portrayed cinematically in films and TV shows. And it covers architectural movements and a lot of brilliant stuff about and from a native Angelino's perspective. So it points out obvious shorthand, cinematic shorthand used to make points about Los Angeles where someone might leave a bar which he know and Angelino knows is in this specific neighborhood of Los Angeles, but the because the cuts can happen in a film, it opens out into a downtown Los Angeles location. And there's all this kind of stuff that Tom Anderson is really smartly irritated and pissed off by. I guess one of the things I really love about Los Angeles plays itself is that Tom Anderson, who's the narrator, is kind of annoyed in a great full cast and crew kind of way. Anyway, he has a couple great quotes about Los Angeles being in movies. One of them is this. He says, quote, the city is big. The image is small. So he's talking about the vastness of Los Angeles and the so many different things that comprise what is contained under the umbrella term Los Angeles. But the image on the screen, however big it might be in a movie theater, is is but one small representation of that. And that's kind of what this whole documentary is about. Referring to what I was talking about before, he calls it silly geography. He says, silly geography makes for silly movies. And one of the things he really likes, and, and, and one of the films that I watched only because I heard of it in Los Angeles Place itself, is what I think is a 1974 film called The Original Gone in 60 Seconds, which is directed by Toby Halicki. And it's a, a weird, I, I, I mentioned it in an episode where I think I did a double feature with that and maybe another 70s crime film, which I can't remember. But... It's a super low-budget, independent, non-permitted shot on the streets of Los Angeles, crazy car theft, car chase film. And in its rawness and in its truthfulness, Tom Anderson points out in Los Angeles Plays Itself, it contains for him some of the best representations of Los Angeles because it's the first L.A. in quotes movie, he says, to use the South Bay of Los Angeles, which is a considered unglamorous area stretching from Long Beach to El Segundo. And this is featured in other films like Jackie Brown, Heat, and prominently and brilliantly in To Live and Die in L.A., which I think after Gone in 60 Seconds is one of the first movies to really use these locations for a film that's set in, quotes, Los Angeles. And it's one of the particular strengths of 
to live and die in L.A., although the film itself is guilty of the thing that irritates Tom Anderson the most of all, which is malignant, malevolent use of modernist architecture as a code reference for bad guys. And the home that Willem Dafoe's character, Rick Masters, the counterfeiter slash painter, lives in is a great example of that. And it's one that he cites often in Los Angeles plays itself. So check that out if you haven't seen it. Now, I was also struck watching this a few times as I did for this episode. What do I want when I watch an 80s movie now? Like it's a different movie going, uh, sorry, movie viewing experience. I'm talking about a, a not a movie about the 80s, not a movie set in the 80s necessarily. I'm talking about a movie made in the 80s. It's the same thing that I love about 70s films, right? What do I want? Well, I want film grain. I want 70s clothing and mores. You know, I want the type of 70s psychology in actors, directors, writers, camera people, whatever, all of that stuff, the collective experience that that a country is going through at any given decade and is expressed in these films, either directly in a, in a film set within this actual period of the 70s, right? You get the clothes, you get the music, you get the lingo, the mores of the time, as I said. And when you get an 80s film now, and this is such a great example of one, I think, it's the same thing, right? It's not that you're watching it ironically. Um, it's that it's so of its time. And this is a brilliant example of an 80s film that you can experience on a number of different levels and that I did experience on a number of different levels in watching it recently. Now, the impetus for this episode is that famously, for whatever reason, and I don't really know why this is, this movie is not available streaming as far as I can tell. It's been one of those films you have to buy it on physical media, which of course for me is not a problem. I love physical media. So, but recently, uh, I think it's MGM put out a new 4K ultra high definition remastered version of the film. And along with it, it collects all the interviews and making of stuff that have existed over the years. And it's really worth getting, especially since I think, unless they've made a streaming deal in the inter intervening months that this DVD has been available. And you would think that a podcast about the movie might have gone and checked to make sure that my facts are correct and that you can't, in fact, stream this easily on Amazon Prime. Maybe you can. I would love it if you could, because I'm not sure you're going to see it otherwise unless you really make the effort to buy the physical media. But I, I want you to do that. If you're a fan of the podcast, you probably either already own the movie or are looking for an opportunity to see it again. And I hope you'll feel that way after you listen to this episode. So what do we want when we watch 80s movies? Well, I want period detail. I want period music. I want I want that vibe. I want that 80s-ness. I want that Reagan-era weirdness. I don't want what I get from sort of some James Cameron movies shot in the 80s, um, talking to you, 
Bruce Edwards now, who recently requested that I watch Aliens. I don't think that's an 80s movie. That's probably 94, 95. But same thing holds true. It's It takes place in this like realm of dialogue that doesn't even exist in the real world. People don't actually speak like that. There aren't actually characters like those represented in some of these James, James Cameron movies, whatever period they're set in. And you can listen to my episode about recently watching a James Cameron double feature for more details about what I'm talking about when I'm talking about that. But I want vibe. I want elements of the period. For example, there's a scene in To Live and Die in LA where Willem Dafoe's character leaves this gym where he transacts business. And he's in his workout outfit. It's a velour plum colored track suit with white piping. And he's wearing this like low cut t-shirt that in any other setting would be ridiculous, but it completely works for the character. It completely works for the movie. It's not something you're watching ironically. And one of the other pleasures of this film is how real people feel in this unreal setting of this film. And I think that's because Friedkin is weird. I should say was weird. The other impetus for this, of course, is William Fried- Billy Friedkin, as everyone refers to him in these materials. He was weird in a good way. You've heard me say many times on the pod, weird is good. Billy Friedkin was weird. He's a weird director. He directed two of inarguably the most iconic American films of all time in The French Connection and The Exorcist. If he didn't do anything else other than those two, wow, crazy. Those two things don't have anything to do with each other. They're not in the same genre. They're both incredibly influential within their genre. And as a filmmaker, he is so all over the place in a way that feels truthful and human and realistic. He's not some wonderkind who never misses, right? He's got completely bizarro failure films in his canon. He's got brilliantly weird choices like Sorcerer, his remake of a classic French film of four criminal ne'er-do-wells banding together to try and accomplish an impossible task. I think Chris and I talked about Sorcerer somewhere along the run here. Uh, It is absolutely worth seeing for a, a sequence that stayed with me. And that's the thing about these Friedkin movies. There are always sequences that are they're iconic. I mean, it's it's so trite to say iconic, but the truck on the bridge sequence in Sorcerer, I'm so glad that I never saw that film before we talked about it on the podcast. I don't think we did an episode about it. But my God, sitting there watching this thing, you can't even believe what you're watching. And that's the same thing in the car chase in the French Connection. And it's the same thing, I think, done better in the car chase in To Live and Die in L.A. We'll talk about that as we talk about other aspects of this film. I think that Friedkin had kind of a famously quirky nature. I've read some allegations of kind of difficult onset behavior 
you know, that he would do whatever it took to get whatever he needed from actors. But then again, in listening to the actors talk on the DVD of To Live and Die in L.A., and to frankly listen to the stunt coordinator talk, uh, the cinematographer, listening to all the people who worked on the film, you get much more a picture of someone who is the type of director that real creative, talented people love to work with because he trusts them to do their work. He's not micromanaging their work. He's on the fly. He has extremely firm ideas, but many, many times in the making of stuff, you have a department head talking about like, well, you know, he told me to solve this difficult task related to the film. And I came to him with what I knew to be a pretty complicated and kind of frankly crazy solution to which his answer was go do it. And you see the fruits and the benefits of that in this film. So I don't know if the truth of Friedkin as a difficult onset person or true or not, probably has a lot more to do with, as ever, the flickering vagaries of Hollywood power. He never quite ascended to the ranks of even someone like Coppola, who, by the way, if you compare the body of work in terms of actual filmmaking chops, I don't think there's any question that Billy Friedkin was a better director than Francis Ford Coppola. Now, he didn't direct a The Godfather or The Godfather 2, but damn, he sure sure as hell pretty much did. I mean, he did The French Connection. Is there a more iconic crime film than The French Connection? I, I'm not sure. It's certainly in the pantheon of the top three. And as we've talked about in my Godfather episode with Ernest Lupinacci, I got real doubts about Coppola as a filmmaker. Uh, whereas when I watched To Live and Die in L.A., and in a way, it's a different kind of watch because I'm going to explain to you how I watched it kind of once this time just for immersing myself in the story. And it was only when I kind of started paying attention to the making of stuff that like, holy shit, these scenes and how incredibly complicated they are and yet how effortlessly you consume them as a viewer, that to me is real bravura filmmaking of the sort that gets me excited. Because it's not showy for the sake of look what I can do. And though I love him and many of his films, a Brian De Palma, for example, can have some showy aspects of look at these incredible things that I can do with the camera. Similar to Hitchcock, De Palma's, you know, Great White Whale. Similar to Scorsese, who does these incredible things with camera movement. And those work for those films, absolutely. Friedkin's a little different. And certainly in To Live and Die in L.A., it's all in service to his story. And there are moments where you're kind of like, you have to stop and go like, what? Did I just see that happen that way in this otherwise kind of not throwaway shot, but there's there are shots where like a character is just walking into a location and it's just, you have to stop down and go like, holy hell, that is beautiful. That's amazing. And so as ever, Hollywood probably didn't know what to do with someone like Billy Friedkin. Billy Friedkin was probably, um, I don't know. He just, he made a lot of different types of films. He was certainly 
married into the power structure of Hollywood. He was married to a very successful producer. He worked throughout his career. Uh, he directed five different actors in Oscar-nominated performances. Gene Hackman, Roy Scheider, Jason Miller, Ellen Burstyn, and Linda Blair. And Hackman won an Oscar for The French Connection. Here's a great quote from Billy Friedkin. He said, quote, the most beautiful location in the world doesn't mean shit next to Steve McQueen's face. <laughs> He's talking about the power of a movie star. And when I watched To Live and Die in LA, I think one of the things that Friedkin really appreciated was just the ineffable quality that actors, the right actors possess when cast in the right parts. There isn't a false note in the casting of this film. This film holds a score of 86% on Rotten Tomatoes. The critical consensus on Rotten Tomatoes reads, quote, with coke fiends, car chases, and Wang Chung galore, to live and die in LA is perhaps the ultimate 80s action thriller. Now, as far as I can remember, there's no coke fiends in To Live and Die in LA, which is probably an indication of just how 80s it feels without necessarily falling into these tropes of the 80s. And also, by the way, much like Jackie Brown, which I've praised, and I have to do that on the pod because it's one of my very favorite films, much like Jackie Brown, it's set in a similar in the similar South Bay area of Los Angeles in this kind of non-Hollywood locations. San Pedro features so prominently in To Live and Die in LA. You know, it's got these oil refineries. It's got this, this working bay. It's, it's just gritty. You know, the bars of To Live and Die in LA are these longshoremen bars. It's got the greatest bars ever put into a film. So I think it's, first and foremost, it's a great script that he wrote with the former Secret Service agent um, what's his name? Pitovich, Ger Gerald Pitovich, Pitovich. I guess that Friedkin read this book. He wrote a book and it's all about, you know, working and chasing counterfeiters, et cetera, et cetera. And they worked on this script and the story is great and it grabs you. And it's very easy just to flow along with this story. As I said, um, one of the, I think that talking about the strengths of the film, I would say the cast, I would say particularly the brilliant use of really good, really interesting supporting actors, people like Steve James, Robert Downey Sr., John Turturro, Darlan Flugel, Dean Stockwell, Jack Hoare, Deborah Feuer, people whose name, you know, some of those people, you know, those names, other people you don't. When I tell you there's not one false casting note in this entire film, however small the part, and how hard that is to do, I think he pulled out of retirement the casting director for um, The French Connection, who wasn't even a casting director, but he knew every actor in New York City. And that's where they got some of these people uh, whose first films this largely was. Just to go through a few, you think about William Peterson. This was his first leading film role. We did Thief on the pod. That's in 1981. He played a bartender. I think he has one quick shot. Don't think he necessarily has any lines. 
uh, because he's a Chicago guy like Michael Mann, as is John Pankow, the great John Pankow. But this is William Peterson's first leading film role. Think about that, which is crazy. Okay, the next film he does is Manhunter with Michael Mann. And that is, these are like, these are like William Peterson DNA iconic film roles here. Okay. I, I watched, they'll watch this film three or four times in order to do this episode. And I became fascinated by William Peterson, who, by the way, do you know how many episodes of, um, and what is he on NCIS or something? I mean, this guy talk about a home run as an actor. Um, I have to look it up because I can't even remember which one it is. Which of those shows is he on forever? Uh, oh, CSI. Like 198 episodes. I mean, that's an acting home run. That's a career, okay? But when you look at him in this era, 1985, 1986, he contains this kind of coiled energy, an intelligence, but a vulnerability and an emotion. He just has that on screen. You know, he's not the smartest guy in the room. He doesn't exude that vibe. And he also feels fallible. But somehow that contributes to his kind of mystique and his ability to present on screen. And here he's playing that role where, you know, in a bit of nail, hitting the nail on the head, his name is Richard Chance as a Secret Service agent. He's taking chances, he's cutting corners. He's going to do whatever it takes to take down Willem Dafoe's counterfeiter because he knows that the Willem Dafoe character, Richard Masters, killed his partner. And John Vukovich, played by John Pankow, who this was also John Pankow's first substantial film role. The film role that he had just before this uh, same year was Rambo First Blood Part 2, 1985. He plays uncredited POW number six. That gives you an indication of where he was. He had a part in the Miami Vice TV show the year before in 1984. Uh, he's in The Hunger, 1983, but his credit is First Phone Booth Youth. This gives you an idea, okay? So... John Pankow and William Peterson are your leads, along with Willem Dafoe. And what had Willem Dafoe done at this point in his career? Not much. <laughs> Not much. Those are your three leads. Now, in retrospect, you look back at this film and you go, oh, yeah, of course, William Peterson, John Pankow, Willem Dafoe, Dean Stockwell, John Turturro, Steve James, all these people that you know. But think about it at the time. It's crazy. It's crazy. He's making, I mean, it's not really a studio picture. He's making an independent feature. That's another thing that's incredible about the movie. You know, it's made by some production entity, SLS Pictures or something that I never even heard of. I think MGM probably picked it up or distributed it or owns it now. I don't know the, the rubric of of the origin of ownership. But Friedkin says at one point in the making of like, oh, I felt like making an independent film at this time. And I don't know if that's just sort of what you tell yourself when all the option that you have as a filmmaker 
has been reduced to you're going to make a $6 million film independently of the studio system. Uh, but that's what this was. So to have a director making material like this at this budget level with these unknowns and to have this thing be the result is crazy. Um, here's a quote from William Friedkin that I really liked about cop and criminal movies. He says, quote, all of the films I've made that I've chosen to make are all about the thin line between good and evil. And also the thin line that exists in each and every one of us. That's what my films are about. That's what To Live and Die in LA is about. There's a thin line between the policeman and the criminal. The best cops are always crossed. The best cops are the ones who are able to think like criminals. But for a quirk of fate, they might have been criminals. Now, what's interesting here in this film is that in a lot of ways, the Willem Dafoe, Rick Masters character, the bad guy in the movie, is more together than Richard Chance, the William Peterson protagonist. And what I mean is we're, we, we see Chance having this, I wouldn't even call it a relationship. He's using this woman as a source who is compromised because she's on parole. Um, this is the character played by Darlan Flugel. He's using her for sex while basically blackmailing her to provide information that he can follow up on for his own career and just keeping her dangling at arm's length. Meanwhile, Rick Masters has this kind of real relationship that feels like they love each other and she's a partner to him. She's a muse to him. Now, there is a twist at the end after Rick Masters dies, spoiler alert, where she sort of callously moves on. However, that feels of a part with the general attitude of the film, even though it kind of undercuts something I liked about the disparity between the two main protagonists in terms of the good guy and the bad guy, which is that Willem Dafoe's character is controlled. He has a code of logic and he only uses violence when threatened or necessary. He doesn't go off half-cocked. And like I said, he has this relationship with this artistic woman and he has a life in the arts outside being a counterfeiter that feels very 80s. I mean, there's kabuki theater scenes that are probably the only, I'm not going to say it's howlingly funny, but it's certainly of its time. It's like watching one of those music videos that, guess what? William Friedkin also directed some music videos in the 80s. And so there's a bit of that vibe there, but the way the relationship is portrayed is great. So I love that. And I love Turturro, of course, who again, here's Turturro. Here are his credits before this. You know, he is like in roles that don't even have names in Raging Bull. He's man at Webster Hall table in 1980. In The Flamingo Kid, he's Ted from Pinkies. He's also did a Miami Vice. He had a role in Desperately Seeking Susan, which I haven't seen in a long time. I don't know how big it was but I'm going to assume it wasn't a starring role. Uh, so To Live and Die in L.A. is really his biggest role to date. And he is fantastic. He's Turturro. 
what an opportunity to appreciate what a unique screen presence this guy has been for however many years it is from 1985 to now. You know, he's so unique. He's so himself. He's so... It just occurred to me that in every John Turturro role, he's John Turturro, yet I think he's one of the most brilliant actors that we have. You know, it's beyond just being like a character actor. He's so unique and he's so unique looking that for him to work as he does, I'm talking about work in terms of being successful in so many films, it's truly remarkable. It's almost standalone. It's kind of like freakishly standalone to contemplate how gifted this guy is at everything. Humor, brilliant comic actor, phys his physical self and control, his drama, his ability to break your heart, his ability to be annoying, his ability to be a worm. He can do all of these things. It's incredible. And to see him and to live and die in LA is to really appreciate how great he is. And uh, I want to play a little of this scene because I was so struck watching this there. Turturro gets, gets nabbed by, by William Peterson's character ca carrying some counterfeit bills of Rick Masters. And he's in jail and Rick Masters goes to visit him. And the way this scene is shot is so brilliant. Neither of these guys blinks. They stare each other down while they're ostensibly having, I wouldn't call it a friendly conversation, but it's kind of a feeling each other out. Are you going to rat on me? Are you going to get me out of here? I'm not sure that's going to convey here, but just listen to the Turturro-ness of this and you'll, you, you can probably picture it in your mind's eye. Like convincingly an ex-con, by the way. You got balls coming here. How are you making it? Like every other... Now, by the way, here's how this is framed. The camera is pointed down a hallway that Torturo enters in a jail. And you're in this usual setup where two guys are going to talk to each other through chicken wire glass on phones like in a jail. The camera has Torturo enter this long hallway. He sits down. We don't see who he's going to be talking to. He smirks. And as he says, you got ball showing up here, the camera moves through the wall of the chicken wire glass. <laughs> like you see the wood, but it's moving in an impossible way through the set to reveal Willem Dafoe. Then we are in a sequence of kind of slight over the shoulder two shots as they talk. And Dick in this place makes it day by motherfucking day. I'll act you know. I want to know when you're going to get me out. I want you to be patient a little longer, Carl. I got caught carrying for you. Now it's my turn for some consideration. You have my word. You won't have to do the whole nickel. What does that mean? Grimes is the best lawyer in the state. It'll either be an appeal bond or the sentence reduction. And the check is in the mail, and I love you, and I promise not to come in your mouth. I'm doing everything I can. Carl, we got to talk about Waxman. But what about him? He was your last stop before the airport. What are you saying? He said you never delivered the package. 
What do you mean? He says I ne he never got it? I counted out 600 grand right there on his desk. I had it wrapped in $10,000 packages. Like, like you told me, you put it in a safe right behind his desk. He said you called, postponed delivery. Next thing he heard, you were busted at the airport. He's a lying son of a bitch. Okay, what's great about this is the basis of this writing is like the most generic, noir, bad guys in conflict stuff. You were supposed to deliver the package, but the guy said that you never showed up. What? I'll kill him. Of course I showed up. It's like, of course, the crooked lawyer that Turturro was delivering the package to used the opportunity of Turturro's arrest to pretend that he never got the $600,000. And this is not like the most original stuff, but the quality of these two guys and the quality of the filmmaking is what elevates it beyond that. So Turturro is phenomenal. And Willem Dafoe is phenomenal in like, you have to also remember, Willem Dafoe's not like your typical bad guy. He doesn't read like that. He reads more like the effete downtown painter that Rick Masters sort of is. But man, when he turns on the evil, he's a badass motherfucker and you better not mess with him. And people who mess with him do not turn out well. So those actors are really what elevates this film. And it was also really cool. I realized, like, I've never really seen Robert Downey Sr. in stuff. I, I really want to see that documentary that Robert Downey Jr. made. I guess from all the stuff I'd read about Robert Downey Sr. and Putney Swope and his 60s-ness and all this stuff, I kind of thought of him as like this super bohemian type guy. But he does a great, great supporting character turn here as a bureaucratic, bitter Secret Service boss of William Peterson and uh, John Pankow. Here's a little of him, because I, I thought he was just a revelation and really fun and cool to watch. Get you 30K to make a buy. You'd hear him laughing all the That's way him. from Washington. Shit, man. Is that what you think of when you think of Robert Downey Sr.? Like this streetwise New York sounding guy? Piece of government out of that much in a day. We got a chance to make him on a hand to hand buy, which is something he cannot That's be. That's William Peterson. You're not the first agents to get next to Masters. He always asks for big front money. Right, and nobody ever approves it, and he stays on the street. The limit for buys is 10 grand. I don't make the rules. Look, you could get this approved if you wanted to. 302.5. What? 302.5. You violated section 302.5. The manual says the agents must notify the agent in charge, that's me, of all ongoing investigations. You violated this section. And I'm not going to cover your end. Yeah, well, I'm not asking you to. You lost a federal prisoner. And I want Cody back. Yeah, yeah. Where the hell were you? Hey, hey, hey. He wasn't with me, all right? Why not? Look, I lost him. I'll get him back. So Robert Downey's great in this, and it's worth seeing Robert Downey Jr.'s father in a new way for me. I also want to shout out Steve James, who died far too young, and he's so much more than kind of this martial artist that I think even I thought of him as. He does a great turn in this movie. And again, you're talking about like 
You have John Turturro and Willem Dafoe going toe-to-toe. You have Steve James going toe-to-toe with Willem Dafoe, who even though he is at this young beginning point in his career, these people are going to have 50-year and ongoing film careers. Like, these are the real deal. These are actors. If you're a fan of acting, like, this is a genre film that has real movie acting in it. And Steve James goes toe-to-toe with Willem Dafoe and is a badass. You know, I'm reminded of, what's the scene we recently talked about? Oh, it's in The Godfather where Jack Waltz, you know, when Tom Hagen goes out to see Jack Waltz, like, Coppola was so smart to pull out of Puzo's book that, like, Jack Waltz shouldn't be this, like, Hollywood patsy that Hagen rolls over. No, he should be, in his own world, the most powerful person, so that it's so insurmountable when he refuses the Godfather and he refuses Hagen. It's so insurmountable for them to triumph over real power like that, that when they do, when Khartoum meets the terrible end, that's part of what is so brilliant about it. It's not that he's this pushover. He's this powerful, scary dude. And guess what? Steve James is a powerful, scary dude. Here's a little of this kind of scene when the prison hit on Turturro's character that Steve James set up for 50 grand doesn't work, thus creating more problems for Rick Masters. And Rick Masters shows up in his apartment wanting his money back. I get all the tapes, brother. (laughs) That's Steve James. Yo, 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 yo. Hello, Jeff. Now, here's another great Friedkin touch. That what you just heard? Hello, Jeff. Well, what we're seeing is Friedkin's hand, I'm sorry, Defoe's hand on this red cushion, some kind, a pillow or a couch cushion. Hello, Jeff. Like, (laughs) there are these choices in the movie that go by and you sort of just accept them. And then when you're watching it a second or a third time, you're like, holy shit, that's so kind of batshit crazy and inspired. It's like Friedkin has this visual language that you just ingest. But if you step back, you're kind of like, wow, I'm getting really cool, weird shit fed into my veins here by this guy. Like to introduce the menace of Rick Masters in this way with just this shot of the hand on a pillow. It is so counterintuitive and weird. And then the very next thing, when we do see him. What are you doing in my crib? He drinks from a can of Coke. He sent two assholes (laughs) to do Cody and they blew it. I paid you half. I want it back. Yeah, well, uh, I'm trying to get that money back myself. I had to front the whole purchase to get my people to do their thing. Now, the the eye contact here. Well, this is like a movie about eye contact. Shit, forty grand. Because I ain't leaving without it. (laughs) How are you, Cody? Next time to be no fuck up. What next time? He's in protective custody. (laughs) Yeah. Protective custody don't mean shit to me. The man's dead. <laughs> okay, so in this scene, what, what's happening so far is the Steve James character 
is in the presumed position of power because he's rolling into his own crib with like three or four other scary dudes. And Rick Masters, Willem Dafoe, the only white guy in the room, is there by himself. He is sitting down. He is not in a defensive position. He's surrounded by these guys who are standing near him. And in the way the scene has unfolded so far, it's Steve James who whose character is supposedly in control of what's happening. The pig's ass. But now he starts to have a moment of doubt. I can't afford to have it circulating right now. I told you I don't have it. Get it. Now again... You're listening to this dialogue, but what's going on with Willem Dafoe's eyes here? He's looking around the room at the guys that are standing around Jeff's, Jeff, Steve James' character. Get it. I need the 60 grand. It's like this flat effect, but it he's anything but flat. He's so alive in this deadpan way. Now look, my man. I told you I don't have what you're looking for. So why don't you make it easy on yourself? Just shag your ass out of my now, crib. Jeff pulls a knife now out of his be belt. A Go get some ink. And start printing some more of that shit. What's happening, fella? Now, this is a great character actor named Jack Hoare, who plays Rick Masters' muscle. This guy is so memorable. He's scary in such a small part. He only has a few lines like that, like, hey, Rick, you got a phone call. Hey, what's happening, fellas? Get up the stairs, tough guy. He doesn't say anything more than that, but he's brilliant. And then these two guys lay waste to Jeff and his buddies, and and uh, and Rick gets the cash back. And then again, in another weirdo freaking touch, the next shot is he's with his girlfriend, Bianca, Rick Masters. They're naked in his modern Los Angeles home. She's lying naked in bed, and in the foreground, he is naked and crouching in front of his fireplace where he's throwing the 600, you know, all the money that he just got back from Jeff that Jeff was trying to keep from him. He's burning it all naked. Like, it's, (laughs) like, I guess it makes sense in the context of, like, here's a boyfriend and a girlfriend, and here's some things that they're going to do together, but, like, it's a batshit crazy choice in a way that doesn't read that way when you're playing it. It's so so brilliant. Now, I want to talk about a few of the things here quickly. Like the things that make this movie incredible um, are the score. Like this is one of the most notable film scores of the 80s. As I said, taking a band not at all associated with LA and making this perfectly 80s and perfectly Los Angeles score. Um. The, the music is perfect throughout. The car chase clearly is a thing of epic importance and beauty, and we're going to talk about that. It's an eight-minute sequence. Um, the, the cynicism of the film, the mistrust in systems, the lawyers can get you off anything if you have the money to pay. The turn that happens at the end of the film, 
what happens to our main protagonist, Rick Masters? Unexpected in a film of this variety. Um, the weird, kinky sexuality that Friedkin puts throughout this movie. Uh, there's a sex scene after that thing where Masters burns the money. And again, it's one of these sequences. It's just two or three quick shots. You know, Rick Masters films himself having sex with his girlfriend. And that's a, that's been established in the film. So the sex scene starts where we're watching them on his TV as it's being filmed. But they're sort of in the background on the bed. And what we're watching is what the camera's capturing it. And it's put onto a TV screen. Then it cuts to them. And she kind of gets on top of him. Like she's going to peg him. And he looks so vulnerably at the camera. It's this quick shot, but it's so remarkable. It's so fascinating. Like what's going on? What was said to the actors? Uh, it feels like there was something more there, but Friedkin has left just this bit that creates some incredible additional ripples in this character that are so cool. And there's this other stuff between he gets his girlfriend a present and it's this other dancer. Um, there's, again, these choices that Friedkin makes, which blur the line between reality and fakeness, but call attention to the fakeness. So for example, one of the defining characteristics of the of the chance character, the, the William Peterson character is he loves to base jump, which is such an eighties character thing. Okay. And for whatever reason in the screenplay, it's he's jumping with a parachute, but in the movie perhaps to do with either insurance, lack of insurance. I don't know. Lack of budget. He doesn't base jump off a bridge. He jumps off a bridge, but it's presented uh, when you first see it, he's standing on the bridge and he looks, he's looking out over this Bay area in like San Pedro. And again, you don't know what's going to happen. It looks like he's going to kill himself. Like that's how he kind of reads. Then he jumps. And only when he jumps, do you that, do you then see the cable that runs up his pant leg that's attaching him to the bridge? And there's some kind of audio where you're you're quickly given the information that he's a thrill seeker. He's like, woohoo! And you see this, this wire, which in real life, I'm not sure how that would work. Like you pretty much would be jerked so hard and so high that you would break multiple things. So there must have been some bungee, something attached to this. I'm not sure what it was. But again, it's like this little bit of movie magic that's allowed to be. And there's other examples of this in the film where Friedkin sort of purposely is using this subterfuge, but he's kind of tipping his hand that he's doing it. So another thing that happens is in the establishment of Rick Masters and his girlfriend, Bianca, and the fact that she's involved in this kabuki dance troupe. Well, when we first see the dance troupe, we don't know who he's with we see him looking at a scene. And when the scene is over, we see what's clearly a man, the back of a man who has been a dancer on, on stage, walking towards Rick Masters in the dressing room. And Rick Masters, who is facing us with the back of this man in, in, in 
the front of the frame, he kisses this man very passionately. Then the, then the shot switches to the other side of the line, and it's now the actress Deborah Fuhr playing Bianca, but it's very cl- it was very clearly a man. It's not trying to be a match, I don't think. I mean, it's sort of like he's doing this thing either poorly, which would be weird because it's so in control everywhere else in the film that that would be strange. Like, it's a choice. I think it's a choice. He's saying that although this is a woman, it wouldn't really bother Rick Masters if it wasn't. And the way he does that is brilliant. And again, so unexpected. There's a shot at the end of the film. It's used in the beginning, but it's a shot at the end when John Vukovich, the John Panko character, shoots Masters, who then immolates in this pile of money and gasoline that he's using to burn down his studio. The camera freezes, all the, all the color drains out. It goes black and white, almost like a negative, and then the film resumes. These are just these cool, cool choices. Um, so Bianca and Rick Masters have this cool relationship. Like there's a scene, uh, where her importance to him is represented because when he is basically approached by John Vukovich and chance to do a funny money deal, he, uh, that guy, Jack whore comes in into the workout room where they're sort of meeting and Rick Masters is taking the measure of these guys who purport to be Palm Springs doctors and business bankers and all this kind of stuff. Meanwhile, he's got his girlfriend out rifling through their car to make sure that the documentation and the stuff that he can find in the car matches what they're telling. And listen to her in the scene. Like she's a for real player. She's not just- Hey Rick, get a phone call, man. She's not just arm candy. So she's waiting for him outside in the parking lot. This is where he's wearing this beautiful velour sweatsuit that's just so Which brilliant. Which one is it? There's nothing in there. Some tennis rackets in the trunk, uh, men's clothing with the Palm Springs store labels, some business letters with return addresses in the Cayman Islands. What did the letters say? Something about please forward the stock we discussed or something like that. Who were the letters addressed to? Caribbean Banking Unlimited, Dutch Antilles. Did you notice the names just so like, I don't know. I like this scene. I, I like the way she's used in the movie. I like the way Darlan Flugel is used in the film, who is not chance's girlfriend, but she's caught up in this web with chance, but it's contrasted by the fact that the Bianca character, Deborah Fuhr here, you know, is really partners with Rick and she got the information. It's not like she's like, oh, I don't know. I didn't look. Like he asks her all these very specific questions and she got all the information. So I I think that's a great strength of the movie. By the way, these are, as I said, these are the best bars ever shown in a movie. These, I don't know where these bars are. They might be in San Pedro, California, but every bar that's shown, every location, there's a place called Shipwreck Joe's Topless Cabaret that's used It has this giant enter, enter, enter signs painted on the exterior. This is one of those shots. All it is, is Chance exiting his truck, passing in the front of Shipwreck Joe's topless cabaret, 
walking by the words enter, enter, enter with an arrow pointing into the door. And it's this very architecturally interesting building. It's just this throwaway insert shot of like him to get him into the cabaret where he can interact with uh, the Darlan Flugel character who he's kind of pressing for information. But it's like one of those shots where you just have to stop down and rewind it and go like, holy hell. How incredible is it? This is her. I'm watching this shot right now again. You just have to watch this. <laughs> this shot is just so good. San Pedro in the back. Everything's in focus. It's masterful. And then we're in this... This realm we haven't been in, this deep, saturated red and the green light of the strip club booth where she's working. You told me you weren't interested in that. Well, now I am interested, okay? All I know is what I told you. He's on the number 11 Amtrak, leaving San Francisco 7 in the morning, getting into Union Station at 435. How do you remember that? You wrote it down or what? Who's the seller? A guy I know. What did this guy you know tell you? That a Chinaman comes down from San Francisco, buys diamonds, gold, whatever. What's nice use of uh, Wang Chung's first big hit, Dance Hall Days, in the background of the scene, too. What's so amazing about this is, you know the way that De Palma is kind of a fetishist for voyeurism and a lot of the scenes that he shoots are sort of overlaid with his own kind of weird issues towards women. You know, Friedkin is like a fetishist with location and specificity. Like the truth contained in just this locked down shot over William Peterson's shoulder of this strip club booth, it, it, it is, it defines strip club. Like it defines the seediness of the environment just through use of lights and very simple camera movement. There's an anecdote uh, where the cinematographer, Robbie Mueller, is brilliant. He did a lot of work with Wim Vendors. Um, you know, he, he, he talks about how, like, again, giving people license to do their job. Friedkin didn't give him specific instructions in sort of how to do this blocking. In fact, he had the actors work out the blocking, and he told the cinematographer, like, just shoot it. If they're in frame, they're in frame. If they're not in frame, they're not going to be in the movie. Like... He let them figure it out and he's letting them figure it out within the confines of this thing that he set up. It's, it's quite something. So I really like these two female protagonists and the way that they're used in the film. And even though, again, we're in a neo-noir world here, so it's not like these are the most evolved female characters, but they have agency. They are, if not in control of their own life, in the example of the woman caught up in the Rick Masters situation, you know, she's a decent person and he's not. Um, it, it's just, it's just something that the film contributes a little additional intelligence to than the norm. I also want to talk about uh, Dean Stockwell, who I was like, man, Dean Stockwell plays one of the corrupt lawyers. He's so good. Caddy is good. He he just he he embodies this character 
Your only defense is to say that you were working undercover without the knowledge of your supervisors. And again, just in that little setup, and in the way he's sitting in this office in this suit, he's smoking a cigar, he's got cut crystal and silver surrounding him, these office windows, he's, he's tanned, he has a gold pen. Like, before anything even happens, this is eight seconds in, there's so much information contained in Friedkin's frame here. And so much information contained in the perfect casting of this guy. Like he looks, his face, he, 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 his pockmarked face makes him untrustworthy and demonically experienced. And yet someone you would want to turn to when your whole world was crumbling, which is what's happening in the scene. Vukovic, having realized that they inadvertently got an FBI agent killed, is coming to a lawyer he knows to be corrupt and who represents Rick Masters, the very guy he's trying to pursue. And he's like, what do I do? How do I get out of this situation? And this is what, <laughs> this is the advice he's given. We were trying to get next to Masters and things just got out of hand and you intended to return the money. Problem is you're going to have to take the witness stand and the prosecutor can ask you anything he wants. Frankly, I don't think you can beat the case in court. Because I represent Masters, I can't get deeply involved in your case, if you see what I mean. So what should I do? You beat them to the punch with the U.S. attorney and you make a deal. What kind of deal? You offer to plead guilty and to testify against your partner. The FBI is not going to want a lot of publicity on this. I suspect they'll go along with a guilty plea. How much time would I have to do? Probably get you off of seven years. You won't have to do seven, of course, probably a year and a half. Just that, probably a year and a half. Then he winks and he takes a big pull of his cigar. But you can't get involved, right? Not directly. So what he's doing is he's baiting the hook. He's not saying the thing he can't say, but he is visually letting Vukovic know there's a possibility here of something he can do. And here it comes. What would it cost for your indirect involvement? $50,000. I know it's a tough call, but it's one you're going to have to make rather quickly. I can't end up my partner. Can't do it. Vukovic is a good guy. He's got morals. They're being totally compromised and eroded, by the way, by his involvement with Chance, who essentially <laughs> does this to everyone that falls into his, his orbit. And that's one of the great uh, moments in the film is, is this turn that happens. Dean Stockwell is brilliant. That's a brilliant character. So well used. Um. Now, the other two things, the other two iconic scenes from the film are this counterfeiting sequence at the beginning of the movie, which is just a masterwork of its kind. It's a masterwork of visual communication without dialogue. It tells you so much about something so important to the plot, but it doesn't tell it to you through characters talking. It tells it to you at first through a largely silent sequence of shots that walk you through how money is counterfeited and 
when the music comes in, as you'll hear, um, I'm not going to play all the parts, but it's the, the beginning part is just this, you know, taking a, a, a photo Rio stat or something of actual $20 bills and cutting out their serial numbers and painting over various flaws. And it's all this meticulous process stuff, which I love. I mean, you know, I love process. I love crime process. And that's what this is. It's like this very faithful, extremely faithful. If you listen to the making of stuff, like they made a lot of fake money. Some of it got out, you know, supposedly the feds came knocking on the prop master's door and wanted to talk to Friedkin. A lot is made of this. Sounds a little fabulous to me, but certainly they made a lot of fake money and it was very convincing. They used actual counterfeiters who had done federal prison time as a consultant. It's him doing all of this close handwork in the beginning sequence. And then you're seeing Willem Dafoe sort of sit in and do some of the other kind of stuff. When the music comes in, after this, I, this is such an iconic shot. He's got this metal image that he's made. It's just, it's blank metal until he blows on it. And then you reveal the perfect $20 bills that he can use to print from. And then the soundtrack kicks in as he rubs this red paint over the silk screen. And then we're in this this it's like a flash dance sequence but with counterfeiting <laughs> it's got the ink it's processed but it's it's alive and it and it tells you something of the complexity of what rick masters does the artistic value of what he does in counterfeiting money his attention to detail it's just cool shit and i love this and i can't get enough of it in the film and I think this sequence alone was so noteworthy and it's something that so many people still talk about in terms of how masterful it is. And you know, how Defoe had to learn to do this stuff. And it, I guess the other thing I love about it, it doesn't explain itself to you. It's like, you don't know what the hell is going on. You're just seeing like this metal thing is attached to some printing thing and inks are smeared on it. All these machines exist. You don't know what they're doing. None of this is explained. It's just kind of like that Michael Mann criminal process stuff that I love so much. You know, it's just presented. And, you know, it culminates where he's like washes, or I guess he's putting the, the new bills into a dryer with blue and red towels and poker chips. And this is designed to wear the paper a certain way and to imbue the paper with these red and blue fibers that they otherwise don't have because he's not using the actual fiber paper that actual currency is printed on. But, you know, this sequence is one of the most famous and iconic sequences in the movie, and rightfully so. And it's it's such a great example of Friedkin's cinematic vision, how he does this stuff. It It's masterful. But again, you could watch it, and it's just cool. Like, it, it just plays like a cool sequence in a movie. You're not sitting there marveling at the technical aspects of this until you watch it a third and a fourth time and you start to think about how this makes sense in his mind. There's a lot of examples when we talk about the car chase next, you're going to hear more, where people whose job it is is to know how to do this stuff say to Friedkin when he tells them something he's going to do, they're like, yeah, but that's not going to work because X, Y, Z. And he's like, trust me, it's not going to matter. And he's totally right. Um, 
so that that's that sequence is incredible. Now, the other the last thing we got to talk about is the car chase. You know, everyone will say that the car chase in the French Connection is the greatest car chase ever filmed. And at the time, that certainly was the case. And it remains a visceral, incredible piece of filmmaking and film editing predominantly. I'm going to make that distinction because someone makes it uh, in the making of that what is truly great about The French Connection as a film is the editing Whereas what's truly great about To Live and Die in L.A. is a lot of other stuff that goes into filmmaking. Now, you know, different era, different time in the director's life and career, different set of circumstances, but here's an insane fact about the car chase in To Live and Die in L.A., which Many people consider to be better than the one in The French Connection. I, first and foremost, believe that. It is better to me. It's more cinematic. It has more beats and elements. It has more mastery of the language of the car chase. Is some of that by dint of the fact that we're now in 1984, 85? And there is a a sort of evolved iconography of how we do car chases, that the audience is more sophisticated? Perhaps. But let's consider this simple, crazy, mind-blowing fact. In the screenplay that they were going to shoot, the finished screenplay, the movie they were there making, while they were making the movie, there was no car chase in the movie. <laughs> Friedkin was having lunch with Buddy Joe Hooker, who was the, one of the stunt coordinators on the film. He did some of these amazing fight sequences, which, by the way, deserve as much attention as the car chase because there's a couple, there's only a couple fights. One of them is the Jeff fight with Rick Masters that we just talked about. Uh, there's another brilliant fight where Turturro pulls the wool over Chance in the hospital. That's a brutal and brilliantly staged fight. And then there's a fight at the end in the locker room between all our protagonists. That's what Buddy Joe Hooker was on the film to do. There was some driving stuff, but not this extended eight-minute car chase. (laughs) So here's Buddy Joe Hooker. He says, you know, that's one of my favorite car chases I've ever done. It's one of my favorites of all time. That was the first film that I did with William Friedkin, and he's a car chase guy. There wasn't a car chase in To Live and Die when it started. So every day at lunch, Billy Friedkin and I would sit up and come up with ideas. That's how the chase developed. So the scene wasn't even in the screenplay or planned as part of the film. They're sitting over lunch and they came up with it over lunch. It's the last thing they shot. It took six weeks to shoot the car chase. And the only people that were involved were Vukovic, William Peterson, Buddy Joe Hooker, 50 stunt drivers, Friedkin, and not even the main cinematographer who, it says that Robbie Mueller declined to participate due to safety concerns. So second unit camera, cameraman Robert Yeoman jumped in. Now, again, this was not a union shoot. I don't believe that this shoot was undertaken with all of the protocols that would typically be in place. There's a lot of winging it here. Um, 
And there's some great detail in of making of the car chase featurette uh, from Buddy Joe Hooker talking about how they came up with this stuff. That's when I, you know, I mentioned before that people would come to him having thought about how to solve this kind of problem. One of those problems in the car chase is there's a scene where an 18-wheel truck jackknifes against traffic and it and and it has to jackknife in a very specific way given the mechanics of the car chase. Well, Freegan had said to Buddy Joe Hooker during this six-week tacked-on process of making this car chase that they decided they needed over lunch. And he said, well, I really want an 18-wheeler to jackknife. And Buddy Joe Hooker went to one of, he went to the 18-wheeler guy in Hollywood. He's like, so I called up, you know, whoever he called, Tom Hoss. He's the, he's the guy you, you, you talk to if you're doing anything with an 18-wheeler. And he explained to this guy what he wanted to do. Well, I need a truck to jackknife and I need to do it in this very specific way and I got to be able to repeat it. So the guy came back to him and he said, yeah, we can do it. I've never done it before, but I'm going to need to practice and we're probably going to need something like a runway at LAX closed down in order for us to practice on. <laughs> and so Buddy Joe Hooker goes back to Friedkin and, and he's like, yeah, we can do it, but we're going to have to practice. And in order to practice, we're going to need a great volume of space. We're probably going to have to use a disused runway at LAX and get permission. And Friedkin's like, great, do it. So they did. <laughs> they went and rehearsed it. Then they couldn't figure out how to get the back of the truck to move very specifically as was required for the setup. There's no way to do that. So much like that cable was rigged onto William Peterson's leg, they used a four by four truck that was going to be in the scene. They put a cable on the truck to the trailer of the 18 wheeler. And they figured out that once the driver set it into jackknife, the four-wheeler truck could pull it using that cable, and it worked every time. And this is something that they just came up with on the set. It's like the world's greatest toy set, basically. And you, you can look at these guys. Like, imagine being a stunt driver in, in Hollywood in 1985. Like, these are some badass dudes. And when you watch this car chase, which is an eight-minute sequence, it has story beats. It has multiple drivers. Vukovic is driving at first. Then Rick Masters takes over. Um, it has all these different elements. And just to play, I'm going to like, of course, I'm just playing you the audio here. But like, these are the elements. You know, squealing tires, revving engines, percussive cutaways to close-ups of driving. These insane high-speed tracking shots shot from a distance. This, this one shot follows the car underground and then rises up in one shot to find the guys chasing them and then meets at exactly the intersection where they separate. Like, that alone is a shot you have to look at in this movie and just think, holy shit, the timing of that in real time it's one shot. It is unreal. And it's like, you can watch it and not even notice it because it's, it's exhilarating, but you're not really paying attention the first time to the detail of the choreography here. So like these tropes 
you know, now in this first sequence of the chase where they're going through crowded alleys and there are trucks and things to avoid. And that's a whole thing. That's a whole sequence before we get to all these other sequences. You know, this eight minute, 20 second sequence of this car chase is phenomenal. The other thing that's very different, and I think that separates this from French Connection, which again is great in its, I don't want to say simplicity, but it's a different time of filmmaking. There were things that they originated in this film that didn't exist before. You know, one of them was they had this hydraulic platform so that when William Peterson and Vukovic are in the car and they're swerving to avoid something, well, let's remember, they're being towed by a camera car. Their car is not actually driving. They're being towed. And the innovation on this hydraulic platform was that it allowed it to swivel. So when, when, they're, when the shot calls for them to avoid something, you can cut to the camera pointed inside the car at the actors, and they're moving in real time the way the camera's moving. The other innovation is something that I think is called either a, I think it was called a hothead or a monkey camera. I don't know what it's called exactly. I've called it a swivel cam. I've heard it called that before. But if you look at this car chase scene, there's a shot where we are facing William Peterson through the windshield as he drives. And then the camera in real time pans away from him to the front of the car and it points at where we're going. And this is the use of this camera that was uh, perfected and innovated for use in this film. And it allows for these shots that you wouldn't otherwise have. Now, again, this is all practical. Okay, this is pre-CGI. Nowadays, you wouldn't even do this in real time. The amount of cars on these freeways that are stopped, the amount of drivers involved is crazy. It's crazy for a film at this budget level, even in 1985. This is not a high budget film. It's astounding. And it's a whole thing unto itself. It deserves to be watched and appreciated. Um, I love it. I think it's also cool that it's not like when Vukovic is driving, John Panko, he's frightened. He's not in control. He's not this like Steve McQueen all-confident driver, or even a Popeye Doyle, these sheer force of personality guys who are going to win no matter what. He's terrified. He's so panic-stricken and remains so. It's, it's true to life, you know? And then Chance takes over, and he's kind of more in control, but not really. And that's what, it, that's what the car chase allows to come out is the way in which the character thinks he's in control, but turns out he really isn't. You know, the car chase famously involves this whole sequence that goes against the flow of traffic. That hadn't really been done before. Um, and the other weird thing, you don't even know who's chasing them. Like, the way this is set up, you don't know. Again, the whole car chase happens. You don't know that the guy that got killed that they were trying to rip off was an FBI agent during the whole timing of the car chase. You never, you never, you only learn that after the fact. You don't know who the guys are that are chasing Chance and Vukovic and shooting at them. And then there's other guys. Like, it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter. It's not that it doesn't matter in the sense that you're not being given some narrative information that's important. It doesn't matter in the narrative of what we're doing here. It's just an incredible use of motion and sound and visceral 
and realistic driving stuff. It's it's really never been done better. Um, so what else can I say about this film? The end is there's so many remarkable doubling of images. Um, at the top of the film, Rick Masters lights his art on fire. It's not up to his standards. In the end, Rick Masters is lighting his whole counterfeiting operation on fire and dies by being lit on fire himself. Um, you know, Chance manipulates the woman, but in the end, Vukovic ends up becoming Chance, driving his car, carrying himself, dressing the same way. Um, there are just real artistic, amazing filmmaking things that are done to great success in this movie. And I hope that you check it out. I hope you can hear my enthusiasm for it. It's somewhat difficult to talk about in a way because it is and isn't all of these things all at once. But I think if you seek this film out, there's a lot more to appreciate than I've even been able to get to in this episode. I could go on and on about it, but I do want to try and keep this a little bit tight here. And I will just say that if you do take the effort to check out Billy Friedkin's To Live and Die in L.A., you will really appreciate it. So thank you, as always, for listening. And I will catch you next time on the next episode of the Full Cast and Crew podcast. Thank you again. Good night.